he sees himself as an establishment outsider. He's African-American. He's from Iowa, but he fell in love with Detroit. He has a cafe there. Uh, He's got that Hollywood glitz that always helps, right? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, March 9th. Today, Tara Palmieri is here to talk about a Democrat on Democrat battle that's shaping up in the all-important state of Michigan. There's an open Senate seat there in 2024, and while Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin thought she would have the field to herself, the actor Hill Harper is saying not so fast. Tara and I discuss why the well-connected and politically astute actor is actually a serious threat for the Democratic nomination. And later, Teddy Schleifer stops by to discuss the latest twists in the FTX fraud case and whether Sam Bankman-Fried will take a plea deal. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today to talk politics by Tara Palmieri. Tara, how you doing? Good. How are you, Peter? I'm good. I'm good. Um, you and I have a brilliant Q&A up on Puck right now where we talk all things 2024 Republicans. We got some Youngkin. We got some DeSantis. Everything you want to know. Everyone go read it. But today, Tara and I are going to talk about something seemingly niche in Democratic politics. But I promise you, this has so many fascinating angles. And that is the fact that actor Hill Harper, who you might know from CSI New York, The Good Doctor, You'd recognize him. He's been in a lot. <laughs> He's been in a lot of movies, TV shows. He's one of those like that guys, as Bill Simmons likes to call them. Like they've, they've been around so much and they're in so many things. This is a compliment. She's like, oh, that guy. He's thinking about running for Senate in Michigan. He's not even thinking about it, Peter. He's doing it. He's definitely doing it. So Tara has been writing about this in recent days. What's interesting about it to me as the political junkie is that the field in Michigan after the retirement of Senator Stabenow. The field was supposed to be cleared for Alyssa Slotkin, who is a moderate frontline House Democrat, used to be in the CIA, Pentagon official under Obama, that moderate mom Democrat type from 2018, very well liked in Washington by national Democrats. She was supposed to be the person. Everyone else declined. Mally McGraw declined. Pete Buttigieg, who just moved to Michigan, declined to run. She, she had it. And then Hill is like, Sorry, I'm going to run. Can you explain like why this guy is not just some actor moving home to run for office and why he's actually like got some talent and got some good connections and why he is going to be a big headache for Democrats as he seeks a nomination? Yeah, and it, it wasn't just uh, Jocelyn Benson, Harlan Gilchrist, who's an African-American. Uh-huh. He declined. It was kind of a weird weekend before Alyssa announced her candidacy, which I had heard about like the week before. I was like, someone gave me a heads up. She's going to announce on Monday. And the week before was just like a cascade of this is why I'm not running from a various, um, very popular Democratic politicians in Michigan. And it seemed like she had really shored up the field. She had Debbie Stabenow kind of working behind the scenes um, mm-hmm. to help her, although her office would dispute that and just say that she was trying to get people to weigh the pros and cons. But, you know, she's a Lansing, Michigan, Republican, moderate, but she does not have the love and affection of progressives mm-hmm. or the black community from Detroit. And you mm-hmm. really need that to win mm-hmm. Michigan. 
And so that's a definite issue for Alyssa Slocken. She's going to have to work on that. They know that she's doing this listening tour. She's going all around the state. So when the lieutenant governor, mm-hmm. Garland Gilchrist, you know, dropped out, Brenda Lawrence, who's a former member, even before that, actually, she said to me, we need a black candidate. We cannot, mm-hmm. uh, Alyssa Slocken cannot run unopposed. Now, Alyssa running unopposed is exactly what Chuck Schumer would want, right? Like he doesn't mm-hmm. want a bloody primary in Michigan. It's mm-hmm. kind of a purple state. I know like it's not entirely purple right now. Obviously, you've got two Democrats in the Senate and a Democratic governor. But there's always mm-hmm. the risk that Michigan could go red, right? And mm-hmm. they really see Peter Meyer. Um, he's a supermarket scion, former member, very moderate, you know, voted, voted to Pete Trump. Trump. Yeah, exactly. As a real threat and someone that could could possibly win Michigan. So they want to make sure they've got their ducks in a row and that they Mm -hmm. are putting forward a very strong candidate who can win the entire state and take on what might be the best chances for the GOP to have a candidate. Now, the GOP is Mm -hmm. like the Republican Party chair in Michigan is like actually crazier than Trump, if that's possible, like farther to the Mm -hmm. right. So who knows what they're going to do. But I think Democrats are are treating this like a battleground state that it is. And so, yeah, so everything seemed all... You know, Alyssa's got it. Everyone's dropped out. Sure, there's talk of we needed an African-American candidate. We need a progressive candidate. She's, you know, they were comparing her to Kirsten Cinema. yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But then I learned that there is another person who has not been persuaded to back down from this. Mm-hmm. And that's Hill Harper. So Hill Harper is an actor, but he's not just an actor. He's a, you know, has a Harvard Law degree. He went to school with Obama. He's friends with Wes Moore. Uh-huh. He's like very impressive. He sees himself as an establishment outsider. He's African-American. He's from Iowa, but he fell in love with Detroit. He has a cafe there. Uh, he's got that Hollywood glitz that always helps, right? And uh, Debbie, I was told that Debbie Stabenow called him and tried to convince him to run for mayor of Detroit. And he did not take that well. He does not care about the Democratic establishment. He wants to run. And he's like, you know what? Wes Moore went up against Tom Perez, the former DNC chair, and he won. And apparently he was told to back down. And he sees himself as another Wes Moore. And Wes Moore is obviously another Obama. And it's like this outsider dark horse coming through. And I think Hill sees himself that way. And that's why he's just not persuaded. And he's like, I think that Alyssa has a with black voters and I can get them. So buckle up. <laughs> I love that you said that because like, you know, Schumer is obviously a power broker in Washington. Stabenow has a lot of influence in Michigan. But like among the voters, they're the ones that get to decide. And, you know, especially among like voters under the age of 40. Like I was thinking this recently when like Feinstein in California decided to retire. And like there was some drama around the fact that like Katie Porter didn't wait for Dianne Feinstein to retire before announcing. Most voters don't really pay attention to that kind of nuance, right? And they they certainly, in Feinstein's case, like felt like it's time for her to go anyway. But like, good for Hill Harper. Like, he doesn't owe them anything. And getting offered to run for the mayor of Detroit, by the way, you don't just get the job. You have to win that primary, too. It's not like the easiest thing in the world. Like, that's kind of offensive. (laughs) And then you mentioned, which I didn't know until I read your piece, He's friends with Wes Moore, you know, the author and now governor of Maryland, first, like the only black governor in the country right now. Friends with Obama from Harvard. Like the guy's got connections. And then Cory Booker wants him to run. Cory Booker. Yeah, totally. So like I called him a that guy earlier, but like not to diminish this. If you're on a network CBS drama, like you might not be a household name, but you are a household face. Everyone 
in middle America <laughs> of a certain age, maybe watches those like CBS procedural dramas and they know who he is. And then also like, if you're from Iowa, he's from Iowa city, go Hawkeyes. Like you've always had that, you know, little political itch in you. And so I'm fascinated by it because you're right. Slotkin doesn't hurt like her district covers, I think some like Northern suburbs of Detroit and she's mostly Lansing, but you have to win black voters there. Biden, one Michigan, like, this is a good example, actually. So like this primary will happen in 2024, um, mm-hmm. this Democratic primary. Also, maybe not the same day, but the Michigan, Michigan has been moved up for Democratic presidential primaries. So like there'll be a lot of attention and heat on that right, state. Right, number five. And, exactly. exactly. And so, but we have like a recent example of like a presidential primary year about how important black voters are. And like Biden romped. <laughs> in Michigan right. in 2020 against Bernie Sanders. Again, not the same kind of politician at all as Elisa Slotkin, but like he just cleaned up and especially in and around Detroit and Flint. And like you need to get those voters and not just like white liberals and, you know, suburban mm-hmm. moderate moms, which is kind of what Slotkin's coalition is. And so, you know, he's got to prove himself. He's got to prove that he right. can campaign and raise money and debate and come up with like a compelling agenda but like he's he's an immediate front runner if he can do those things and jump in the race just by nature of his identity and like that's a that's a good thing for him it's really it's really interesting totally and i think it's kind of interesting too if you think about Alyssa Slocken's history like she would make such a good member of the cabinet in like the intelligence like like DNI, CIA, like she would be a great member of Biden's cabinet. But unfortunately, the Democrats, you know, they can't lose a seat, right? It kind of would seem like a natural progression for her to go into a more cabinet role. I just can't imagine that Senate would be the end of her career either. I mean, she has a ton of talent. She also raises so much money. She's a real threat. And that's something that, you know, it's funny. Yeah, someone that worked for her keeps telling me, like, this is ridiculous. He's not going to poll at all. She'll claw his face off. This She's formidable. And she is. She's probably one of the most formidable people in the party. Mm. And that's the thing about it. It's almost like a little Hillary Clinton versus Obama kind of thing where you're like, okay, like, she's got the party machine down. She can raise a ton of money. Mm. And, like, is this outsider going to come in and swoop from underneath her because she, he's got more charisma and, like, what represents the future of the party? You know what I mean? I don't know. It's It's just, like... There's so many things at play and he's he's taking it seriously like he's talking to SKDK, he's trying to hide, mm. which is a big firm in D.C. that Anita Dunn, who works for Joe Biden, it's her former firm, you know, he's trying to hire John Fetterman people. Mm. And the thing I just keep hearing over and over again from Michigan insiders and people on the Hill is like, they don't want Alyssa Slocken to run unopposed. Like, there will be a primary. That is what I just keep hearing over and over again. Mm. But obviously, he's a real candidate in the primary against mm. her. And... Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think he can raise cash, too. Like, I think just being a celebrity sounds helps. Like it. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, like, there's a Hollywood pipeline there. But also, it sounds like the Harvard connection <laughs> right. uh, is is another pipeline you can raise money from. And it sounds like the Hillary-Obama comparison is at once both superficial, but also extremely apt. Like, because Hill Harper is not going to come in, it sounds like, based on who his friends are, <laughs> uh, yeah. Bernie Sanders kind of leftist. He is a pragmatic, moderate Democrat in the mode of perhaps Cory Booker, Barack Obama, and Wes Moore. And Alyssa Slotkin is also a pragmatic, moderate Democrat. And so this this is, by the way, when primaries kind of turn ugly, because like when there's not that many substantial policy differences, Mm. you know, I mean, Obama had Iraq and healthcare that he could 
and him and Hillary went back and forth on that. But like beyond that, that's when primaries turn ugly because you end up going <laughs> down the road of like personal attacks, like oppo research scandals, like and, you know, that can be tough. Man, we are like getting ahead of ourselves so much. I just like am excited if this becomes a real primary because it, it just says a lot about where Democratic voters are going to be at in a presidential year. Again, 20 percent of Democratic primary voters in Michigan are black, you know, and there's a, don't forget, there's a good percentage of Middle Eastern and Hispanics there, too. Uh, and so it's just it's really interesting. And then all the old Macomb County, like Reagan Democrats, those are all like Trump voters now. And that Republican primary, that's going to be a whole another story because Peter Meyer voted to impeach Trump. So who knows if he can even get out of a primary, but we should do another segment on that. Down right. The well, if he doesn't get out of the primary because they pick someone more extreme, that's the best thing that can happen for Democrats. For sure. For sure. And that's kind of what right. happened the last time with Tudor Dixon running against Gretchen Whitmer uh, for governor. In the Midwest, the Republican primaries tend to produce Trumpy candidates these days. Tara, thank you so much. When we come back, Teddy's here to talk FTX. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, live from Washington, D.C. today, where uh, Puck just threw a little event at the French ambassador's residence. Teddy, great to see you there. And uh, I hear now you're a full-time resident of the swamp. That is true. I moved here uh, a few days ago. I, I lived here for a couple of years during the end of the Obama presidency. Um, and it's a, it's a new era. A lot of, lot of things have changed in the last seven years, but good to be back. Well, speaking of Washington, Teddy, you have been closely following all of the legal twists and turns and filings and smoke signals from the Justice Department in the Sam Bankman Freed case. Last week, another one of his top deputies pleaded guilty to fraud, conspiracy, transfer of customer funds from FTX to Sam's hedge fund, basically embezzling customer deposits, and also this campaign finance violation that we've talked about a lot that implicates his former boss. Is there a sense among people in Sam's orbit that this is basically over for him? Has, has the concern grown that a conviction is inevitable? I mean, look, you have three of his top four or five executives now all cooperating in, in a case against him. And regardless of whether or not Sam is guilty of the infractions, he certainly appears illegally cooked um, and will be convicted um, regardless of whether or not Sam thinks he actually did any of this. Nishad was an important get for prosecutors because he testified that, you know, there were doctored financials as early as I think in, in the summer of 2022. And, you know, he obviously also corroborated uh, and filled up the details of this campaign finance scheme that we've talked about on the podcast before. So ultimately, I think he told prosecutors and will tell a jury if one eventually is seated uh, things that Carolyn Ellison and Gary Wang, the two other cooperators, cannot really speak to, such as the political gifts that Carolyn and Gary were not involved with. So so I think um, Nishad rounds out a, a fearsome threesome that will make Sam's life hell over the fall and, and early spring if, if this does eventually reach an October trial. So yeah, I think he is cooked. We came up with a piece this week, though, alongside my colleague, Eric Gardner, you know, who, who sort of argued that things can only get better for Sam from here. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of technical legal arguments over evidence, what is admissible. And just because prosecutors are alleging things right now, Eric points out that ultimately 
you know, Sam's going to have his response, right? We haven't seen any real response from Sam. His lawyers are going to say their piece. And so right now, the narrative is entirely about these three executives who are filling in a pretty damning portrait of Sam. And it's going to be up to Sam's lawyers to make it less bad. And the question is, how much less bad will it be? Uh, does it go from, you know, a 10 to a 9 or a 10 to a 3? But at least as of right now, the evidence is, is pretty incriminating. Yeah, I thought Eric made a great point in that conversation that you guys had for Puck that um, the crypto is confusing for a jury, potentially, that the prosecutors are going to struggle to explain the mechanics of blockchain and hashing and token custody and all these things. And the defense can possibly exploit that confusion. But I've got to say, at the same time, this case seems pretty cut and dry to me because Sam has already admitted what happened on some level. And his defense is basically that it was a mistake what happened, that it was incompetence rather than intentional fraud. But we now know that on the other side of the table, on the witness stand, he's going to have all his former friends, all his former executives, Nishad, Gary, Carolyn Ellison. They've all pleaded guilty and taken deals where they're going to come up and say explicitly, we knew this was wrong. We did it at Sam's direction and we were asked to cover it up. So we'll see what happens. But Teddy, by not pleading guilty now, what is Sam's psychology? I mean, you met with him a couple months ago. You guys have have kept in contact. What is it that he wants to get out of taking this to trial? Yeah, look, I mean, um, I, you know, he's he's embattled. I mean, that's a that's a understatement of the century. But I think he feels that he is innocent and that you know he made some mistakes and you know he's cop to those and will take the scarlet letter for the rest of his life. But that he did not perpetrate a fraud as is being alleged, including by his his fellow executives, who, you know, Sam, I think, thinks are kind of wilting to the pressure of prosecutors and that Sam almost thinks, and I'm putting words in his mouth, but this is what I think he thinks, that this is a scheme by prosecutors to go after him. And, and to some extent, it is, you know, this is almost a campaign that they're waging, and he is upset that he is losing. But this is almost entirely different from the realm of whether or not he actually is responsible or not. And as the defendant, I think he thinks that he is losing, obviously. I mean, uh, every time another one of his fellow executives, you know, agrees to testify and he's, he's against them, he's losing more and more. But, you know, there's a question of whether or not Sam actually believes he is guilty. And despite all the evidence that, you know, is being offered by his former friends, he does not believe he is guilty. Though I do think there is a, there is a you know, Sam's not stupid. And right now he might think that, he is losing, but October is a long way away. I am sure they're gonna. He's got to at least think about trying to get some deal for himself um, before an October trial, and that's gonna. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to to me, there's a pretty small universe of deals that are acceptable to both Sam and to prosecutors. Prosecutors probably feel like they've got him dead to rights, and. You know, it does, you know, getting him convicted and, you know, a splashy trial, like, it's got to feel good if you're, you know, an ambitious young prosecutor like Damian Williams. And Sam, from from his vantage point, thinks he's innocent, as I just laid out. And, you know, does he really care if they chop 10 years off? So he's pleading to, you know, a 30-year jail sentence versus a 40-year jail sentence. That doesn't really make sense to me either. So despite all the reasons on paper why I think Sam probably should do a deal, um, and why prosecutors, I think, should do a deal. I'm a seller on the idea that a deal gets done. I think that there's enough kind of arrogance on both sides here. Yeah, Teddy, I, I agree with you. I mean, 
typically you'd think the prosecutors would want a deal. That is their preference to avoid the time and the expense of a trial. But I agree with you that this is going to be a career-making conviction for Damian Williams if he can get a conviction. And I do think at this point, the prosecutors are excited about the potential blood sport of this spectacle. They want this to be public. There's definitely a political dimension to this. And so I, I agree that it's hard to imagine anything less than several decades prison time on the table and the incentives being for, for neither party to want to immediately take a deal, but to actually see this thing through. But Teddy, when you interviewed Sam at his home back in January, you talked to him a lot about his desire to shape his narrative, to avoid being painted as the villain in this story. And he also told you that his only real friends at FTX were his work friends, people like Gary and Caroline, etc., who have now given this evidence against him. I wonder if it's naive to think that he'll actually be able to accomplish what he wants from a trial, that he's going to be able to get this counter-narrative out there, that he's going to be able to retell this story when he actually has to face all of these people on the witness stand. Sure. I mean, you know, the the speed of, of his utterances has slowed in recent weeks. I mean, you haven't noticed any new Substack posts, right, or any new major interviews. I, I wonder if if there is reckoning's too far, but like a, a a new consciousness that this is really a, a legal fight, and you know, the best way to win the narrative is to win the case, and that involves not necessarily winning hearts and minds, but you know, trying to get certain evidence thrown out or casting doubts upon the motives of the people who are testifying that w- winning the narrative and, and as much as this can be won at this point really is in the hands of his lawyers. Yeah. And I, I presume we'll find out in the coming weeks and months too, whether Sam actually has some exonerating evidence up his sleeve or whether, as you mentioned, the um, legal fight just gets bogged down in procedural fights over various technicalities to actually get the prosecution's evidence tossed out. But Teddy, Thanks for dropping by, and uh, I'll see you around town. See you around. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.